0: Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast.
1: We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it.
0: Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 46, Sleeping in Light, where we will be looking at chapters 89 through 91 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of wrapping up.
1: All right. This is the second to last episode of The Name of the Wind. When we get to the end of this section, we will be less than 10 pages from the end of the book. If this is your first episode, welcome. I might suggest that if this is your first episode, you go back maybe 46 and start from the beginning. But if you insist, we love new listeners. Second, I should probably explain what you're about to listen to. So let's get into that. Alrighty, quick explanation of the podcast. Each week we will be examining a section of the book, The Name of the Wind, through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phrenomus of the week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. And finally, wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives.
0: Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, as always, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Though, as always, Pat, if you're listening, we've got no objections if you want to change that. Second of all, we're almost at the end of The Name of the Wind, so if you don't want to know how it ends, I guess this isn't the episode for you? (laughs) Either way, just naturally know, there's going to be spoilers.
1: But not only for this Also for the wise man's fear and potentially the lightning tree and the slower guard of silent things.
0: And finally, as a word to our community, while it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, which we do frequently, we won't stand for any abuse of the author responsible for it.
1: Oh boy, do I have some critiques this time.
0: Oh yeah. So with that out of the way, it's time for our 45 second recap and it is my turn. Do you have a timer ready for me? Do I ever. One would hope.
1: Okie dokie! In three, two, one, go!
0: Quoth takes his whipping and spends his winnings on music loan payments and fripping and starts back at the beginning. With Ari's guidance to the archives, Quoth navigates and with Fellow's Alliance learns the ways of its initiates. With Will and Sim, Quoth ponders Denna's nature while he consults the wind's whim and finds no luck with her nomenclature. All this to say, alack and alas, Ambrose will not lay aside this last trespass.
1: 23.68 seconds. Ha!
0: No cherries for me.
1: Hmm. No cherries for you.
0: Indeed. So let's talk a little bit about our lens here and why we chose it. So we chose this one as wrapping up Mostly because a lot of what happens here is kind of montaged.
1: I would argue that our first little chapter and our last little chapter are kind of montaged. But the rest of it, the reason I suggested wrapping up instead of a lot of other things that we could do that kind of mean wrapping up the story, is it also feels very comfortable at the end. It's like wrapping yourself up in a cozy blanket.
0: Yeah, I can see that. So... Things start off with really just a pretty quick speed through of what happens with Kvothe's next round of punishment. He takes his whippings. He's learned his lesson. He doesn't do anything super dramatic afterwards. Um, I'm
1: going to argue something. He has not, in fact, learned a lesson. He hasn't.
0: Let me put it this way. He at least waited a couple days before he got into trouble.
1: No, 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 no. <laughs> no. He's already, before this point, gone to the Underthing and figured that he can find a way into the archives. And he spends, while he is still healing with 57 stitches from getting whipped, every night crawling through the Underthing. He has learned nothing.
0: Okay, let me rephrase that. At least this time he let the null root wear off first.
1: Do we know that he did? We don't know that he did.
0: It seems to imply that he did.
1: Yeah, but he still wound up going places where he tore out his stitches.
0: Look, if Quoth wasn't a little bit extra, we don't know what he would be.
1: This is accurate, but I in no way think that he has learned any lesson.
0: Oh, there's definitely some truth to that. But you said... But my point is this time he didn't just immediately go and get himself caught with fire in the library.
1: Okay, he didn't get caught.
0: I didn't say he'd learned the right lesson, but he did learn a lesson. <laughs>
1: uh, agree to disagree. He didn't learn any lessons. So, you know how Kvoth has just had his ledger this whole time? We don't, thank goodness, get a direct rundown of every cost of everything that he spent Ambrose's money on. It's interesting that he says Ambrose's money. But we do get a list of what the things were, if not what the cost was. An extraordinarily fine lute, which is really cool because I know from my own experience, if you have the passion to want to learn an instrument, You can totally learn on a crappy instrument that costs you 50 bucks. It's fine. Go for it. But your life will be so much easier if you go for a little bit, at least, of an upgrade. It's not like you have to spend $2,000 on a guitar to learn on. But my nicer guitar that we have here, my acoustic that I love so very much, way better than the one that is currently residing at your parents'
0: Well, and by the same token, I've got two electrics. One was a super cheap Guitar Center special. And yeah, for what it was, it was good, but it didn't play the same way I wanted to. I ended up upgrading for one that cost a bit more, and the playability was a lot higher. Just the overall feel of it was better, and it made sounds that I liked better. And that makes me want to play more. And that's, at the end of the day, what you really want.
1: Yeah, and so... I can totally see how thrift shop special <laughs> loot. While I'm sure Quoth loved the hell out of that thing. This one is nicer because he can afford it. He also got two nice sets of used clothing, which is great. Maybe now he has new pants. I don't know. Maybe he remembered to buy shoes. Who knows? A small bottle of my own blood, which I think is a very keen way of saying I paid off my debt to Davy. And a warm new dress for Ari. Ari is the only person that Kfoth ever thinks of in this way. He's not necessarily trying to rescue her, but he has an actual affection for her that is different, I'd say, than the way he feels about any of his other friends.
0: Yeah, there's nothing really transactional about this. He just thinks this is something that she might appreciate given the colder weather that's about to come on.
1: And he knows her particulars. He knows that she won't take a used dress. He knows that it is cold and that she needs something warm. He has actual compassion for her.
0: Yeah, I get the sense that here he's not trying to change her way of life or lift her out of some desperate situation, but rather meet her where she is. That's one of the things that I like about their friendship. Absolutely.
1: And it's interesting how you say it's not transactional. With Denna, we're going to get into that one. Yeah. But for now, both very much not learning a lesson, (laughs) spends most of the next chapter stealing his way into the archives.
0: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of... Like when you're playing a video game and you get into a maze section where you just have to hug a wall and then just keep following that wall until you get where you're trying to go. And you go over it pixel by pixel trying to find the thing you're looking for. And I always hate those.
1: I like that we get more explanation of downings and vaults and the woods and all of these different rooms or areas of the under thing. Cricklet. I love that name. The under thing reminds me a lot of being down the rabbit hole. And Ari herself has that whimsical Alice in Wonderland whimsy for almost whimsy's sake, but there is a meaning behind it. And it's almost, but not quite incongruous with the rest of the story. Ari's sections have a completely different atmosphere, I'd say.
0: One thing that really struck me was... Here, we actually see naming in action. The way that Ari intuits the names of things is completely unlike the way Quoth views the world. Like, he has no idea why she calls these various segments of the underthing what she does until she explains. And suddenly, he realizes that there's no way they could be any other name than they are.
1: You hear names like the woods, and you expect it to be like a forest. And instead, it's a series of crumbling halls and rooms where ceilings were propped up with thick wooden support beams. Cricklet has a tiny trickle of fresh water running down one wall, and it has crickets. Vaults, instead of being like a vaulted ceiling, is like pole vaults. They have an entire conversation about bellows. Or billows. It has a lot of multiple meanings. And Ari says, you call things by their names. That's what names are for.
0: Interesting. That's exactly what Elodin has been trying to teach him this entire time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and yet, Kvoth is much more willing to listen to Ari because he doesn't view Ari as an authority figure.
0: It says something about both Kvoth and maybe also Elidin.
1: Maybe. So I think Ari called the wind to make Kvoth's cloak billow out a bit.
0: I could see that. Ari seems like the sort of person who is so in tune with the way everything works in the Underthing that for her it is just as natural as breathing as anything else. It's definitely something that fits with everything we know about her.
1: I like her saying, ins are easier than outs, you know.
0: I mean, yeah, it is always a lot easier to get into trouble than out of trouble, so.
1: Right, but in this case, it's physical. Getting into a place and getting stuck is way easier than getting unstuck. Oh, yeah. You ever stick your head through the bars of like a railing or... Never?
0: Nope, because (laughs) I recognize that it was easier to get in than out.
1: (laughs) That's accurate. I'm pretty sure I've told the story before. I'm pretty sure I told it on the podcast before, but I'm not 100%. When I was four or five and in preschool, I really, really liked caterpillars, like a lot. And in the Pacific Northwest, they have what's called tent caterpillars. They're these bright orange and black caterpillars that you see all over the place. And I would pick them up and put them over in a corner of the play yard. And there was one day where I saw one underneath this little play structure that was like rainbow shaped and had slats across. So it's like two arches of metal with wooden slats across that were maybe six inches apart. Well, I was a preschooler (laughs) and I decided that instead of hopping off of this play structure and going around to get my caterpillar, that I was going to go through. Well, that didn't work because I got stuck with my hips on one side of the slats and my ribs on the other side of the slats.
0: Oh no. You knew this. Yeah, I think you've mentioned this once or twice before. <laughs> yeah, maybe once or twice. That's really painful. It
1: wasn't actually that painful. I don't remember it hurting. I just remember being stuck. I also remember my dad having to be called and the fire department because the fire department had to come along and take apart the place
0: structure <laughs> to get
1: me out. Oh, poor Phoenix. I know, all because I wanted a caterpillar, but I was stuck there well after every one of the other kids went back indoors.
0: Yeah, I just imagine both here squeezing further and further in, and I keep wondering, how is this sustainable as a way to get in and out, right?
1: Hopefully he found another way.
0: I would hope.
1: Because, uh-uh. Not every time. I mean, if he gains a little ounce of weight, what's going to happen if Ari doesn't feel comfortable? Right. But on top of that, I kind of feel a little bit like this one is another one of those Alice in Wonderland illusion doors. Where the hallway just shrinks. But I get that also, there was a game that I played over the summer called Superliminal. It was something that one of my friends from when I was going to DigiPen, actually worked on. And it's all about messing with your perspectives. And there is a <laughs> hallway that just gets smaller and smaller and smaller as you go in. It's supposed to look like it's longer, and it just gets smaller to the point where the door at the end, which looks like it should be a normal-sized door, is about a quarter of the size.
0: The first thing he does immediately upon making his discovery... Is go to Fella's room? In the middle of the night? Without even bothering to change his clothes? Because he's excited. This next segment also is a little cringy to me. Yeah.
1: Okay, I'm going to be fair. Patrick Rothfuss is a, at this point, 20s or 30s year old dude writing about
0: a 16 year old dude.
1: Some 16 year old boys... (laughs) Are this.
0: Yeah. I guess the thing that gets weird to me is that he has us imagining that Fella is someone who sleeps in the nude all the time. Eh. And the fact that it's all played for sexuality is...
1: I would say in some ways it's not really about sexuality. I would say it's about teenage awkwardness more than sexuality. This might be coming from my perspective of this doesn't seem remotely sexy. I think it's played for laughs a little bit at fellow who just is like, whatever. And Quoth who is like, you know, the cartoons with the dog or the wolf or whatever that has the tongue that rolls out and the eyes that are heart shaped and like beat back and forth into his brain. Right. I think it's supposed to be funny and cute. I don't know. It seems less cringy to me than his relationship with Denna.
0: That is a low bar to clear.
1: Honestly, I think Fella, from what I can read into her personality from the little bits and pieces we get along the way, I don't think she cares or thinks about nudity in that way. Some people don't like to be restricted by clothing at night. That's fair. It's not a big deal. It's not sexual. It's just not wanting to wear pajamas liking the feeling of your bedding more than you like the feeling of a t-shirt or what have you, or a nightgown or underwear. That's fair. And I think that she's just not thinking about that as a sexual advance when she says, hey, would you like to come in? Because seriously, you're sitting outside my room. It's the middle of the night. I'm going to be polite. Want to come in?
0: So that part wasn't actually what I thought was cringy, but the fact that he talks about it in that sort of, I ignored an invitation to come into her room. That's how in love with the archives I was. You know, that's the only
1: genuine part of this that I can think of. The rest of it is like, I could see that she was naked under her sheet. The wind pulled the sheet closer to her. And I just kind of like, this whole chunk is very, makes me want to take a shower. But it's nowhere near as bad as some of the things that happen in the wise Men's sphere that will just make me want to have audible eye rolls.
0: And we will get to that.
1: I have a very odd attitude towards sexual things. I guess partly because I don't find many things to be sexy in that way that I guess a lot of people who aren't ace <laughs> would think of. Like, maybe it's hot to some people, but apparently it's not hot to
0: you. Speaking as someone who is not asexual, for me also, I feel very weird going into someone else's sexual thoughts. Voyeurism is something that I feel very spooky about. I gotcha. But it does crack me up that he can't even wait until the morning.
1: So, may I just point out, he hasn't learned not to break the rules. He goes to the women's dormitory, which the implication here is that men are not allowed into the women's wing of the muse during the late hours of night. However, are women allowed in the men's? I don't like this double standard of believing that it is perfectly fine to let women who are the responsible ones, go into the men's area This happens in Harry Potter also, where boys trying to get into the girls' dormitory wind up sliding down a slide because reasons. But the other way around, whatever. I think that there is a double standard here, and I think that if you are going to prevent men from going to the women's dormitory, that you should also prevent women from going to the men's dormitory. There should be equal and logical rules.
0: I would agree with that. I also kind of get the sense that because of the gender ratios at the university, rules for women are almost more of an afterthought than anything else. I don't think that they are being made in a way that actually makes sense.
1: Right, but they're also being made by
0: old men. And in kind of an ad hoc way too, not even really thinking about long-term consequences or actual justice.
1: Right, women don't get whipped at the
0: university. Maybe the better stance is no whipping.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Maybe no one should be whipped. I'm not saying that women should be whipped. I'm saying that there is a distinct double standard.
0: And if you're thinking that, well, maybe this will teach him a lesson, obviously it hasn't.
1: Right. (laughs) In fact, his behavior gets worse. He just learns how to hide it better.
0: Anyway, moving on. (laughs) So he basically just says, hey, I need you to do me that favor you owe me.
1: And then we get the one and only time where this isn't being told from Kvoth's perspective. About three or four paragraphs of it's actually Fela's perspective, but Quoth is still telling the story. And to critique this little bit, it's just, Kvoth, stop trying to assume that you know what's going on in another person's head. Just don't.
0: Or what's happening when you're not in the room.
1: Of course, Kvothe is in the archives. Of course. Ugh. He's broken the rules. All of them.
0: And of course, he's wearing an extra-dramatic, billowing cloak. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And a hood. Like, that's not supposed to make fella pooper pants.
0: Yeah, it's not exactly... Like, it feels like it's written to elicit some manner of suspense. Who's fella going to find in the archives? We know who, Quoth. You're not creating any suspense here. It didn't work.
1: (laughs) And then, less than 20 pages from the very end of the book, we get an explanation of the archives. First of all, I think it's kind of funny that we have some legitimately clever sexual jokes in this little section. Apparently, people, instead of putting a sock on the door, will just go to the archives and go into the private reading rooms and just, you know, have at.
0: I mean, these are teenagers and 20-somethings, so...
1: The ratios would also imply, because there cannot possibly be enough women for truly only heterosexual sex to be happening in these rooms... There have to be some gay relationships. There just have to be.
0: Yeah, I get the feeling that if you are a heterosexual woman looking to find a mate at the university, the odds are good, but the goods are odd.
1: (laughs) I mean, also, that's assuming that every single one of the women at the university is heterosexual?
0: I'm just saying, if you are... One other thing that I really enjoyed here in this section, and this is unironically, is the description of the ongoing struggles of data governance within the archives. (laughs) It really spoke to me a lot. I'm currently dealing with a lot of that in my own professional life right now. And the business of establishing a taxonomy that covers an entire organization is... Exhaustive, and it is like herding cats because as soon as you think you found something that makes sense and is more or less universal, you'll find an exception or someone who refuses to accept it. <laughs> and so, what we're
1: talking about is that throughout the life of the archives, which apparently has three quarters of a million books, is that right?
0: Yeah, 750,000.
1: 750,000 books. And some of them are very delicate, and some of them are in different languages, and some of them are incomprehensible as to what they are, they're missing pages, there's bits and pieces that you can't actually tell if they're accurate histories, if they are a history, if they are a log, if they are anything. And meanwhile, you're also restricting the amount of light that can be used in the archives to like a hand span in front of your face. Everything is going to be hard to find and hard to catalog. And then on top of that, you've got remnants of like everyone else's attempt to catalog
0: this. Because the moment you finally feel like you've gotten a handle on things, and it is literally the work of multiple generations, something will happen and someone will decide, I don't want to do it this way. And so there's this constant pull between trying to support a legacy system and then develop something new that transcends the limitations of said legacy system.
1: Not only that, but you have rivals that are just like, I don't like it because that person did it.
0: Right. The petty egos that exist within any organization that gets to this size. Yeah. The political side of things gets real.
1: (laughs) Just burn it all. Start
0: over. Sometimes that legitimately does feel like the only way that you can move forward in these sorts of situations. And yet, if you're dedicated to the preservation of knowledge, which is specifically the archives remit, it's absolutely maddening. And yeah, just the business of doing a count, not even a categorization, but just a raw count. And then from there to then have to go through each one, with enough detail to be able to catalog according to some taxonomy, is really going to lead you down a bunch of rabbit holes. And Quote's like, yeah, I've been thinking about it for a couple of hours, as if that's enough.
1: (laughs) Because he always thinks that he is smarter than the adults that are taking care of these things. He somehow thinks he's better at this than Lauren.
0: Thankfully, Fella pretty quickly puts him in his place. Which... I love. I did too.
1: <laughs> I liked, though, the, the little joke. And the moral of the story is that people get passionate around books. Hence the need to spot check the reading holes. <laughs> I like that this is at least bantery, back and forth, kind of friendly.
0: I think this also is something that feels real. Like, these are the exact sorts of concerns that would really drive someone's day-to-day life in the archives. This is something that feels like someone had to really think about how this part of the world worked. And they realized that, yes, it does make sense for it to make no sense.
1: I get the impression that Pat may have spent a lot of time in a university library.
0: (laughs) As one of my colleagues would put it, it's all a puddle of goo. (laughs) Explain. So right now we are in the business of cataloging every service within our company. Ugh. And the thing that we are quickly discovering is that a lot of the things that call themselves services are not in fact services, they're puddles of goo. And then when you get into the business of trying to define a service, then it gets pretty gnarly. We found that actually it was easier to define a service by what it wasn't and what its failure conditions were. A service is fundamentally something that can break. If your service can't break, it isn't a service, it's a puddle of goo. Oh gosh. Find the thing that can break and that's your service.
1: All right. On that cheerful note, let's go on to the next chapter. <laughs> <laughs> this is the one that really does feel a lot like you're wrapping yourself up in a blanket rather than wrapping up a story. I like that Foth describes Elden's teaching style as something that could conceivably be referred to as teaching. I think that the more accurate way to put this is Foth just isn't receptive.
0: Yeah, I think part of it is, like we alluded to with Ari, Ari has taught him a lot about naming, because he's not expecting her to teach in the traditional sense. And I kind of get the sense that naming isn't something that you can just go to a class on and attend a lecture on and just understand. It seems to be something that has to be learned experientially, and... Because the time that Quoth spends with Ari isn't him sitting here trying to learn. It's just him experiencing. He's actually receptive to it. Whereas with Elodin, he brings all of his own expectations about what learning ought to be that prevent him from actually experiencing. Elodin is really in a thankless position here.
1: I don't know why he would
0: want to teach Quoth. Honestly, I don't know why he would want to be a structured teacher in the first place. I don't think he does. I think really the educational philosophy necessary to teach naming is antithetical to this idea of having a set class devoted to a thing.
1: Or a set time devoted to a thing.
0: Right. And it's not something that can be taught didactically. Like you can't just give a lecture on it and then someone will understand it and then be able to do it. And it's not something that you can just do according to now is the time when I practice naming. It's because it's all about that unconscious sleeping mind that specifically and explicitly ignores conscious teaching. Elodin is doing the best he can here and Quoth is just not going to be the kind of person who can accept that.
1: And here is the part Just makes me want to bang my head against a wall a bit. Quoth continuously looks for and does manage to run into Denna and essentially make himself a third wheel
0: constantly. And he thinks that he's doing this as a friend. And I don't think he is thinking about how she feels about it in the long haul.
1: Or if she is receptive and happy that this is happening, then I agree with Sim. She's cruel and potentially wicked. She's taking advantage of all of these guys and she clearly doesn't want them around. She clearly doesn't feel great about having them anywhere near her. And I think she might be using foth as a way to disentangle herself or keep them at a distance take all of the benefits of them lavishing their attention on her, but not have to reciprocate or allow them to get further. I don't think she likes the business of using her body necessarily for these guys' pleasure. I think from how it's written, because it never goes into her having sex with them, it's more like, she is someone that they can enjoy the company of and that they can use her as kind of a, a trophy or a, a little bobble on their arm. And a lot of these guys do seem to have actual affection towards her, even if it is more like a siren attracting them.
0: I also get the sense that both, for his own part, even as he claims to not be possessive, is still really possessive in the way he thinks of these other people.
1: Exactly. Because he's always judging the fact that somehow they're proving that she belongs to them. While in his own mind, this is what he said. I have known her longer, my smile said. True. You have been inside the circle of her arms, tasted her mouth, felt the warmth of her, and that is something that I have never had. Little bit of bullshit there, because he has cuddled with her on top of a Greystone, and I would say that that's a more genuine interaction than any of the interactions that these guys are having. But but there is a part of her that is only for me. Ew. You cannot touch it, no matter how hard you might try. And after she has left you, I will still be here making her laugh. That is such a transactional, like, icky... Ugh. My light shining in her. I will still be here long after she has forgotten your name. Ew. Ew. Uh Uh-uh. Yeah. I don't like that at all. I don't like the idea that he is sitting there going, Hi, you might be with her right now, but I'm the one who keeps her.
0: Yeah, he's thinking of her in this very objectified way. And at the same time, like there's that air of resentment there's a lot of friend zone bullshit in this like this idea that somehow his friendship is this consolation prize that he is taking because what he really wants is to be able to have a romantic relationship with her
1: i am one of her few friends i won't risk that i won't throw myself at her bullshit i won't throw myself at her You do that constantly.
0: Right. Like that's what he does every time he goes to the Aeolian.
1: He wants her to just say, you know what the hell with all of the rich people who are funding my life. I'll go for you.
0: He just seems like the sort of person who is afraid to actually put himself out there and be vulnerable to her. And that's really, I think, what it really boils down to. Because at the end of the day, he is afraid to reveal who he really is to her
1: he's also afraid to ask her who she really is because i think hear me out he might not actually like her if he knew who she was
0: i think he's afraid that that'll be the case
1: so they just have this little flirtation back and forth where she's kind of using him as a way to not have to get deeper into a relationship with someone who is giving her money who she doesn't have a who she doesn't have a true desire to be with and at the same time like i just don't think that he realizes that while she is using these other people for the purpose that they can give her that she may also be using him as a different purpose
0: we get the first hint about this when simon brings up savoy who we haven't heard about since the first time quoth met denna outside of the context of that caravan He's ostensibly been around the university, but we haven't heard hide or hair of him. And it turns out he really cared for Denna and was hurt quite a bit that she just up and disappeared on him.
1: Yet he is not being the creeper stalker person going and looking for her constantly. If he wanted to see her, he'd just have to hang around Quoth for like two seconds. Right? The conversation with Sim, I think, is very accurate. I think outside of the Quoth and Denna bubble, it's more easy to see how parasitic and gross this relationship can get and I think Sim sees it good honest gentle Sim and then Quoth continues to just objectify Denna and ascribe characteristics that he doesn't actually know if they're real saying that she is like a wild thing that she cannot be caught and I'm like you're not setting out the right bait
0: Not only that, I kind of get the sense that he's not comparing her to a person. He thinks about her as a thing, as an animal, or as this force of nature, as opposed to a human being with agency and ideas and desires of their own.
1: Maybe not even an animal, maybe an archetype or a concept. He takes the little piece of paper that Dennis stuffed into his window the note. And he tears off her name. I'm not sure that this is her name. I'm not sure at all that Denna is who she is. But this has shades of when Jax put the moon's name in the box. Kvothe tears her signature off of the piece of paper and lets it go floating around within the questioning hall.
0: Asking the eight ball. (laughs)
1: But the wind never took her name away. The question was still wandering in the house of the wind when he left. And we get our little wrap up about Ambrose. Ambrose is patient.
0: I love how Quoth has this assumption. Well, I think he's learned his lesson now.
1: (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Boy, was I wrong. (laughs) And we know, boy, was he wrong. Yeah. And that's only the second book. I mean, we don't know what
0: ultimately happens. Part of it is because Kvothe is impatient, he can't imagine that anyone else could be. Kvothe ascribes his own impatience to everyone else, so he cannot possibly imagine that someone could delay gratification. As we'll see, no matter how clever he is, it's something that will continually bite him in the butt.
1: And I think that that's a wonderful note to continue on to our fournemos.
0: I agree. So it's your turn this week. Who do you have? Fella. Excellent. Tell me about it.
1: All right. So, first off, I really do think that culturally speaking, she probably doesn't have the same qualms, hang ups, everything about nudity or sexuality. I don't think that it bothered her or even occurred to her that a boy coming to her room. Filthy and gross, and probably needs a shower. I don't think it occurred to her at all that there would be any sexual anything about I don't know being wrapped up in her own blanket. I I don't know. I think that that's fine. I think the fact that she wasn't reactionary or like "ew, go away, what the hell are you doing here?" She'd have every right to go, "What the heck are you doing here? I don't understand." Uh <laughs>
0: Also, I got to figure that her saying, hey, do you want to come inside was probably more along the lines of, if you get caught out in this hallway, you'll get in even more trouble. Do you want to come inside where you won't get caught?
1: Right. That's kind of what I think, too. (laughs) And then instead of just letting Kvothe think that he is this superior minded genius, she's like, hey, you think that this is easy. It is not easy. This is how it's not easy. She's not going to just bow down to the know-it-all. And I love that. She's legit smart. She actually is written that way. She's not playing into any of these hero-worshipping archetypes or these... Like, I don't get the impression that she's sexually interested in Kvoth. There's none of that. There's no flirtation. There's none of that. It's like, hey, you're a person. I'm also a person. And yeah, of course, she was thankful that he saved her life. But I don't think she feels like she owes him anything anymore. She gave him a cloak. We're good. You know, if there was a transaction to be made, there it is. And I like that she's matter of fact. I like that she's not written like an idiot.
0: I also like, like you were saying earlier, the fact that she doesn't feel like she has to flatter the ego of Every man who says something even remotely intelligent or even resembling intelligent? <laughs> like when Quoth is sitting there talking about how he's been thinking about organizing the archives, Quoth makes a back of the napkin guess at what you'd have to do, and so far as it goes, as maybe a proof of concept, that's fine, but she knows that that's nothing. That doesn't mean anything. She doesn't feel the need to fawn over his intelligence or his brilliance. She just says, okay, so you've got a tip of the iceberg.
1: (laughs) She doesn't feel the need to flatter him, which I think is great. I think in some cases there are some people that are predatory and make you feel like you have to flatter them to get yourself out of a situation. And I think that Ambrose is written that way, especially in his relationship to Fella. It's like... If I don't make you feel like you're smarter than me, then I am potentially going to be killed. And with Quoth, to his credit, he's like, oh, okay, I have a new perspective now. I'm now smart. And you can almost hear Fella rolling her eyes at him not comprehending how much he does not know. He's seen a puddle and he thinks he understands the ocean.
0: I mean, honestly, as Fella describes it, it feels so real. Like I said earlier... <laughs>
1: I like how much thought was put into it. And I also like that fella got to be the one to explain it instead of like Willem.
0: The only thing that's missing is Conan, the librarian exhorting him to learn the Dewey decimal system.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, anyway, I enjoy fella and I would like more of her. I would like more places for her to shine. I also think it's notable that Kvoth is describing her in his story as still this capable, smart person. And yeah, he's like, okay, I was 16, schwing. But he doesn't just focus on, hi, there's this sexual object in my face. So.
0: Yeah. I think fellow's an excellent choice of Fronimos here. Thank you. All right. And so with that, it's time to move on to our interesting fact of the week. So it's my turn this week. What you got? So I think we can all agree that the platypus is a weird animal. Uh Uh-huh. It's already an egg-laying mammal with webbed feet and a duck-like bill and poison spine, and it hunts with electroreception sensors. What? Yeah, it uses electroreception sensors to hunt for things in the water, much like a shark does. Yeah, it's weird.
1: I didn't even realize that they swam.
0: Hence the webbed feet.
1: Yeah, but that doesn't mean anything. It's a platypus. Platypuses are weird. There's a further layer of weirdness here. Okay, but the poison spine thing? What?
0: Yes, it has poison spines that it uses to kill its prey. Where? It's actually in its skin. It's like little uh, spikes.
1: So, okay. I didn't know that.
0: Interesting. The platypus is... You can't make it up. No. No. Here's how it gets even weirder. Turns out, they glow in the dark. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this was an unexpected discovery, <laughs> to say the least. And it, it makes it one of only three mammals that can glow in the dark.
1: Wait, okay, so wait, when you say glow in the dark, I mean, it's like the t-shirt I'm wearing. It's like glow in the dark.
0: Yes, and it responds to UV light. Hey. Scientists discovered this just earlier this month and published something about it in the journal Mammalia.
1: Wait, they haven't looked at a platypus in the dark yet until now?
0: Not exactly, yeah. It's really strange. So turns out that uh, prior to this discovery, the only known mammals to exhibit this trait were opossums and flying squirrels.
1: Wait, opossums and flying squirrels?
0: also glow in the dark, yes. What? These animals are primarily active during the dim hours of dawn, dusk, and then overnight. So what ended up happening is the scientists first observed this in the flying squirrels at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. And this got them wondering if there were any others.
1: Okay, I don't understand how we didn't notice this before.
0: So they basically exposed them to black light
1: Oh, so they don't really glow in the dark. They fluoresce under UV light.
0: They do glow in the dark after absorbing enough UV light. However, most of their samples have been stored, you know, just in museums and such that don't necessarily get a whole lot of UV light in the first place. Okay. So after absorbing enough UV radiation, they'll glow for a little while. It's really weird. So it really is like my t-shirt. Yeah, it really is. Okay. Okay. After that, they decided, hey, well, let's see what else in the museum glows under a black light.
1: Fluoresces.
0: And sure enough, under the black light, suddenly the platypus also glowed. Turns out that though the platypus fur appears brown in visible light, under a UV light, it glows green or cyan. Okay. So essentially, if you ever want to have something trippy for your next cocktail hour, get yourself a platypus in a black light. It's going to have a great mood.
1: I don't think anyone really wants to have a platypus at their house.
0: Poison spines, I get it.
1: Amongst other things. <laughs> it looks like a fuzzy duck. It is not a fuzzy duck. Don't go and pick them up.
0: Right. So, interesting.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know that glow in the dark is the right term. I think fluorescent under blacklight is more accurate, but that's still making my mind just go
0: It's not just fluoresce under black light. After having sufficient exposure to UV radiation, say sunlight, it'll actually charge up enough so that it can truly glow in the dark.
1: I need to read your link. I need to see it. I need to see a video of this. I need just whatever. Yeah,
0: there'll be a link in the description. Wild, right?
1: I mean, you don't have to eat any cherries.
0: Darn tootin'. (laughs) With that, let's move on to our seven words. I believe you have seven words from the books.
1: I do. There were a few. If you want to be morbid, free entertainment is hard to pass by. Referring to all of the people going and sticking their heads out the windows to watch both be whipped... Enough that he had to have 57 stitches?
0: Yeah, that's pretty morbid.
1: Yeah. There's Ari saying, ins are easier than outs, you know. And quote saying, I'll be back in a half an hour. If he's not, he tells Ari, you'll have to come and rescue me. There's also, and I found what I'd been looking for. We can only assume that this means that he found the door to the archives then just pointing that one out there. It might not be what he found right away. Who knows? He also says, I thought things would be better organized. If you want something that makes you feel like your skin's gonna crawl off, they clung to her with desperate determination. And if you want something about Ambrose, but the months passed and nothing happened. However, I don't like any of these for my seven words. What I like is the wind was the clue I needed.
0: That's a good one. That definitely fits.
1: I like how that's finally now that he has called the wind, there's more references to the wind guiding him.
0: Yeah, that fits.
1: Now, what are your seven words?
0: My seven words are words that both of us have uttered multiple times, so it's not unique to just the one of us. That is, I would, but I have a cat. (laughs) You have said this to me, I have said this to you about any number of situations, mostly revolving around being stuck under one or both of the cats.
1: (laughs) So, most recently, Leela has been doing this thing where she just rage purrs at us in the middle of the night because somehow, even though her food is on the cat tree in our room, she cannot possibly go and find it her freaking self. Yeah. So, occasionally what happens, most of the time this is on your shoulders because Sokka likes to sit on my feet. It's like, okay, Leela needs to be picked up and plopped next to her food so that she'll eat it. And I look at you and I'm like, I totally would be the one that gets up and takes her over to her food. But I have a cat, usually Sokka, on my feet.
0: Yeah. And it's just something that we've both had to say.
1: Hey, I'm thirsty.
0: I'd get it, but I have a cat. (laughs) Or, hey, can you take a look at this thing over here? I would, but I have a cat. And it's probably something that will... Show up on my tombstone or something like that.
1: I would, but I have a cat.
0: Yep. Cute. Indeed. And with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me.
1: Thank you for potting with me.
0: And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone.
1: Join us next week when it's our very last episode of The Name of the Wind.
0: Yep, we're going to be talking about chapter 92 and the epilogue of The Name of the Wind through the lens of Hidden Motives.
1: We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music.
0: And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring.
1: Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough.
0: And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough.
1: If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, we would really appreciate it if you would go on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com waystonepod.
0: And as always, here's to one more day above the roses.
1: To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding.
0: And so with that I'd like to thank you with po- thank you with potting for me <laughs> <sighs>